Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute, co-editor of Film Comment. As we enter the dog days of summer, we've been pining for the crisp, air-conditioned darkness of the cinema. Fortunately, as theaters across the country have begun to reopen, seeing a favorite old movie in the dark with other people is no longer a distant dream. For this week's podcast, I sat down with two programmers, Abby Sun and Steve McFarlane, for a broad-ranging conversation about the current repertory landscape. We take a look at what's changed over the past year, for the better or for the worse, and where things might be headed in the near future. We discuss the rapid evolution and proliferation of virtual rep offerings, as well as the programming of the latest Flaherty Seminar and several choice offerings from Film Forum and elsewhere. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Uh, I'm very excited to welcome two excellent, smart, affable, well, somewhat affable, but uh, willing guests. Avi, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me here. My name is Abby Sun, and I am a freelance, independent curator, writer, grad student at MIT in the Comparative Media Studies Department. I run a variety of things at this point in my life, but I'm the curator at The Dockyard, a biweekly screening series of new nonfiction films at the Brattle Theater in Hybrid Square. And I'm also the co-curator of My Sight is Fine with Visions, a online repertory screening series with Keisha Knight. It's really a great series. Uh, I encourage all the listeners to check it out if they get a chance. And it's something we may talk about a little bit later on if we have time. Steve, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Steve McFarlane. I am a film programmer and volunteer at a variety of venues, but my sort of main Hub is Spectacle Theater in Brooklyn, which is a horizontal, all-volunteer, nonprofit cinema with this sort of specialized focus on what we used to call lost and forgotten films. Filmmakers don't always enjoy hearing their work positioned that way. So, and uh, you know, my day job is at the Museum of Modern Art. I've also written for um, Bomb, uh, Cinemascope, Slant, etc. So, yeah, writer, programmer. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us. This was originally going to just be a rep report, which is sort of a series of film comment podcasts that we've done where we just kind of look at the repertory scene and pick a couple of series or films and talk about them. But I think right now we're at a really interesting point, a turning point in sort of reopening or maybe sort of a it's unclear whether this is a turning point because of various variant concerns and whatnot. But I know a lot of theaters have been reopening lately, so there's a lot more in-person screenings going on. And so this virtual landscape that had come to kind of dominate viewing for the last year and change is in a sort of interesting transitional place. And this is something I know Abby has thought a lot about in her work. And I know that she also thought a lot about it before this podcast. She mentioned before we started recording that she'd been looking into kind of what theaters were doing and how they were reopening. Abby, what did you find? Yeah, so I think I'd like to start by kind of drawing a couple of distinctions first. As somebody that has never lived in New York or LA, I think we tend to talk about um, programming and this type of creative work um, only in kind of centers of production and of, um, yeah, 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 cultural prestige and all of that. Um, And one thing that did kind of happen during the pandemic that I want to just sort of give a shout out to at first 
was um, the launching of uh, kind of repertory focused streaming services as people are positioning them. And I think this is a kind of interesting move because it's not directly emulating the theater model, but rather like something that is bounded by discrete screenings in the evening or at that time, but really kind of a streaming model. Um, this might be closer to like, I don't know, a list of films to watch, like a YouTube playlist or something like that. Can you give some examples? Yeah, so this would include things like, some of them are for free. This would include um, Another Gaze's Another Screen, which is not regularly programmed, but every couple of months something pops up, always for free. It's subtitled in at least like 15 languages, which is itself an incredible feat. But this also causes some problems because, um, because they were free, they were using Vimeo, and once you hit a certain amount of bandwidth on Vimeo, Vimeo does reach out to um, accounts and charges exorbitant, I'm talking $10,000 um, in order to continue to host the screening series. And then there's also things like um, Habibi Collective's uh, Shasha uh, streaming service on um, what they call also British-based um, Swana, Southwest Asia and Northern African Middle Eastern, I guess, in the U.S. lingo films, and that's programmed by uh, Washin Tapani, and she's also hosting some screenings, I believe, at Virtual MoMA kind of web screenings. I think so. That's kind of an interesting position because I I would totally consider it repertory programming, but they are being kind of advertised as streaming services instead. Would you consider this to be kind of a, a phenomenon that arose? in response to the pandemic or i mean the, the sort of thing was going on to a certain extent before mm -hmm. but it seems like it's really kind of blossomed is that your impression yeah so from what i know of the history of another days and habibi collective sponsoring screenings and putting on screenings is that they were hosting co-hosting uh, curating in-person one-off screenings in the past um all repertory screenings still um at you know in real life theaters and so I do think part of the urge for something like this is to continue to hold that space um, when it becomes online. But I think it is also um, a little bit of a surprise uh, because another screen was launched with the Sarah Maldor series, which was endorsed and with the participation of the filmmaker's daughters. Which was, I think, in like April 2020, right? It was right? really soon. Yeah, it was like one of the earliest ones. We talked about that on the Film Comment podcast at the time. Yeah, I mean, it was really, I think, the thing that kind of put the idea into Keisha and our head that we could do My Sight is Mind Suspicions because this was something that they launched kind of in a super DIY style because they didn't have a site for it. What they did was anyone who wanted to watch the screenings, right, would have to email for the link. Like, and it was just a Vimeo link of the film. And then you would sign up and they would send you a Zoom link of the panel conversation. So it wasn't like posted on a website. It wasn't. Now, I mean, the, the web design now for another screen is like beautiful. Yeah. And it's all Daniela Schreer. She does it all herself. But I think it's as much a function of, from what I understand, like financial necessity as it is, I think, from the desire to make something that is handmade. And I think in contrast, kind of in the US, when I saw actual brick and mortar cinemas, even ones that did specialize in repertory screening, like the Gene Siskel, the Roxy Theater in San Francisco, they didn't really spend a lot of time maintaining their repertory screenings 
online. So when these theaters are reopening now, and a lot of them reopened just this month or August or haven't even announced their reopening, um, a lot of the university cinema texts like Harvard Film Archive, um, the Block Cinema for Northwestern University um, haven't publicly announced when they're going to reopen. But for instance, the, the theaters that have reopened have gone with kind of what we would consider the blockbuster, you know, people are going to show up for a seven film retrospective, Fellini retrospective, which is what the James Driscoll is opening with, for instance. You know that people are going to show up for, I don't know, staff picks, which is the only thing that the Roxy is reopening with for the repertory screening when they used to do this every weekend. And of course, Anthology Film Archives, as Steve mentioned, is opening with the blockbuster Paul Sherratt's double 16 millimeter protection (laughs) restoration. But one thing that you said that I wanted to touch on was the fact that a lot of these bigger repertory theaters didn't really transition into the virtual um, space smoothly in the same way that uh, another, another screen organizations like that were able to do that. Why might that be the case? Steve, do you want to talk about uh, do you want to talk about Spectacle's uh, uh, pioneering efforts in the virtual in the virtual cinema space? Sure. I mean, we've all sort of now learned how to make it work. I would give the credit for that, though, to Caroline Gollum, who sort of rammed through this initiative to do spectacle programming on Twitch. I think that started maybe even like the last day of March with Empty Metal. And it was really fun. The filmmakers were actually in the chat. It's not my preferred way to watch a film chatting the whole time, but there is a certain electric energy that people get from it. We were doing that not every single day, but at least something every week through the fall in honor of Spectacle's 10th anniversary, which of course we had this big in-person program we were kind of building towards. We had a Twitch mystery double feature of Marco Ferreri's The Seed of Man, followed by Themrock by Claude Feraldo, which actually there was so much nudity in Themrock that it got us banned from Twitch, like with 10 minutes... 10 minutes of the movie left, you know, um, the, 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 the channel, the stream just disappeared, the whole, you know, account. At first we were pretty upset, but it's also kind of a good, you know, no bad, no bad publicity kind of thing, you know, but because of that, another volunteer named Kellen Dye, who actually knows how to program computer shit, not just films, <laughs> built a platform, a streaming platform, which we now use hosted on our own website which can be geo-blocked. And we haven't yet set up ticketing for that, but we're hoping to eventually, just so we can start to generate some revenue again. But all of the streams have been free. And a lot of that has been thanks to the you know generosity of filmmakers like Adam Khalil, Bailey Schweitzer, et cetera, who were willing to sort of let us host their work in this kind of new virtual space. So that toothpaste is out of the tube, even if we do manage to reopen on September 1st, which I've been working almost every day on that. And now I'm kind of like with this Delta shit, I'm like, okay, I don't know. But even if we do that, we're going to have to continue streaming, basically. And so now we're trying to find ways to have the programs work in this kind of two-tier, you know, two-pronged offensive kind of way where you could come see the movie in person. But how do we retain that audience that's now sort of, you know, global? There's a labor issue there, too, right? Where you have now, like, twice as much work to do. As I mean, in terms of, like, 
matching these programs, coordinating them. I would say virtual is actually more work than in person. And it's actually like 10 times the amount of work because when the pandemic lockdown started, we immediately, I immediately, I mean, I'm the only dockyard employee at the time. I immediately moved everything online. And this is before platforms like Aventive and Cinescend and Shift72 had really been developed. Not that the organization that I worked for like can afford those anyway, because that costs a lot of money. But I think what happened to Spectacle on Twitch because of the content restrictions on Twitch is a really good example of platform politics, actually. And I think it actually, uh, so there's this idea that like when things move online, it's like more free, more accessible, more democratic, more, um, you know, free from censorship and things like that. And I think um, while that may be case for the case for certain political matters, it does actually help um, authoritarian governments and entities conduct surveillance, right? Things are much more traceable online. Um, and also it um, makes organizations subject to um, a lot of really hard to find policies. These are all buried in like terms of services and things like that for these platforms, such as Vimeo being um, unlimited bandwidth until you hit a completely undefined um, number. They don't publish it on their website. It's buried in an FAQ that says if you reach um, the top 1% of bandwidth users, a customer service representative will reach out to you. And, and this was this was one of the reasons why we didn't go with Vimeo Premium, even though that appeared to be one of the more affordable options. Like the yeah, platforms yeah. you described, Ship72, uh, you know, those cost thousands and thousands of dollars to get rigged up and also take a lot of time. So one more example. They of like, also charge per play on yeah. top of the startup fees, even if it's a free screening. Um, and they also have additional charges for bandwidth too, because one of the things these platforms do is they um, also provide like uh, kind of the things that Vimeo and all of them provide internally, CDNs, we don't need to get into this, but it, basically affects how fast the video loads um, when somebody's playing. But I would even say, you know, you're talking about both uh, data tracking and means of accessibility for the viewer. But another example, very pernicious, since we were talking about another screen, weren't they, they were raising money for, for Palestinian relief organizations and they were blocked, I think, by, I can't remember if it was, was it Venmo? Was it? Yeah, I think it was GoFundMe or whatever they were raising on. They were just soliciting donations, I believe, right? Yeah, this is Films for Free Palestine mm -hmm. uh, screening series of films made by Palestinian women filmmakers. Incredible program. A series yeah. that we also did, a, we did a podcast about a couple of months, months yeah. ago. Yeah totally jaw-dropping um, and also it's amazing the program notes and all of the kind of um, extra filmic uh, discourse that they build around the works too um, the essays that are posted I mean again the captioning I mean it's the subtitling it's like totally amazing work but yeah I think you're totally right and I think you know when then an organization when a, when the platform itself then like Vimeo reaches out under ostensibly like bandwidth violation issues it does also bring up the question for a project like another screen like is it actually the bandwidth violations or was the bandwidth violation like actually triggered by um political censorship also or political sensitivity i think you know when you're dealing with a private entity where you don't have a formal way of contesting charges um other than just you know begging the customer service representative who's contacting you you really don't know what's going on another example kind of in a different vein 
is the cinephobe.tv, which I think was actually hosted on a Russian server. I guess it still is. They're still streaming. Is that? I think they just came back a couple of days ago last week. Okay. That, that was kind of an early success story in terms of an online program getting a lot of heat from people in what I would consider to be the cinephile community for making things available, unrestricted, ungeoblocked, unticketed. The problem, I guess, is that, you know, most of this media, like the actual files that were being streamed, probably, I would imagine, came from torrent sites, the likes of which, you know, a theater like Spectacle would be not taken seriously for, perhaps even prosecuted for, showing from 10 years ago. So, on the one hand, they're deprivileging access to rare, interesting foreign films for people who are not fluent with those websites. But if you are a, you know, a distributor an archivist, if you work for an archive, if you, you know, have access to those keys, it's probably a real headache. And, you know, I think they were kind of did a really good job of advertising and targeting people who, you know, want to learn more about cinema, want like a deeper sort of more nuanced appreciation of what's out there beyond the like established canon, but maybe are not on this like film nerd dark web, you know, that makes these kinds of websites possible. So like everything, it's a mixed blessing, you know. It's like the, yeah, just sort of like a, a normie torrent. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's, you know, if you've never been able to see a rogue a film, uh, you know, and then it's like, oh, it's streaming for free at 4am. Let me set my alarm. You know, it's great. But, you know, how those relationships would, for example, be sustained if that were a platform that had to go back into the IRL space, you know, where right, they're right, right. figuring out how they could clear these programs that's where it's get that's where it gets tricky. Well, I don't think they would, right? It seems pretty clear that that, that they would not be no operating. No. It seems that they filled that they were only operating because of the pandemic because of the circumstances in which they came, you know, into existence. And it's not totally clear that they will continue to exist going forward. I guess I just want to interject at this point and say that, you know, as somebody that grew up in mid-Missouri, the existence of a site like Cineprobe is quite interesting because it was from Torrance where I originally saw a lot of films as a teenager, right? Um, and for instance, there is a market, for instance, for reselling physical media copies. Like perhaps, you know, the uploading of Torrance is sort of how that gets redone. Um, but also, I guess like, you know, there is the the relationship between kind of like official um or like by reputation you know people that work through the official channels distributors right holders in order to access films you know for for me as a programmer if we can't convince a filmmaker to do something we're not going to show the film you know right. um so on and so forth but you know there has been always an informal and bootleg economy where these things aren't just passed around for free, like for torrents, but are actually sold for profit when it comes to bootleg DVDs and copies of VHS tapes and things like that. So to me, like, I, I, I guess I'd like to, I'd be curious, if Steve or Clint, if you guys have any idea, how is something like Cinepro different than like somebody ripping something and putting it onto YouTube? It seems to be very similar. It just happens to be 24 hours a day and it's oh there's and it's and there's no uh there's no time slots so it's just continuous a continuous stream of films like you go to the website and you open it and it's in the middle of you're in the middle of Raoul Walsh's Colorado territory mm-hmm. there's a lot of obscure films that they program but also a lot of stuff that's not impossible to find necessarily 
it's sort of a curatorial project in that regard. But I think that's the, that's kind of the interesting difference to me. You know, the old stories of going into the theater and they're playing like five different movies and you come in in the middle and then you wait until you get all the way back to the point at which you came back in type of thing. You know, the bootleg idea, I think, is interesting as an ethical question because I think there's two sides to that, right? One is access, which is like people in in Western Colorado where I grew up, uh, we weren't able to see. There was no way. I, I wanted to see Monty Hellman's Cockfighter. I knew about it. But there was literally no way I could have ever seen it. Now, you know, 16-year-old Clint could probably would would see that it was on Cinephobe and like set his set his alarm for 4 a.m. to watch it. And I don't know how that would if that would necessarily improve my life, but I would like to think that 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 access might improve somebody's life. But on the on the other hand, I think you know the other side of that coin is the artist, really, and um, respecting their wishes, both legally and uh, ethically. But yeah. Well, I mean, as, as someone who grew up on the internet, I don't want to be mistaken for shilling on behalf of you know big copyright holding companies, uh, you know, uh, getting sand kicked in their eyes by like a few people watching an internet stream, you know. Um, but it's also interesting, like for example, Abby's program, my site is lined with vision most of these filmmakers are still alive and, and totally active on the internet. And that makes it a different conversation from, you know, a musty film from the 1930s that's in some vault somewhere that was never going to escape on its own. You know, like I've had a lot of interesting conversations with filmmakers trying to have this spectacle program sort of exist on the online, in the online sphere, and then hopefully return to the physical one. But like, do you want people to see your movie or do you want a check for 750 euros that's going to happen once every three years? You know what I mean? Like, right, right. It's, it's sort of like this bizarre, you know, you, you think about it institutionally, it's like, what does my cinema need to do to be able to preserve those relationships, whether they're with distributors or filmmakers? But then it's also like, this has been, for better and for worse, a great opportunity to share things with more people who don't live in New York, Los Angeles, Paris, whatever, you know. Um, but the bittersweet part for me, and I don't know how you feel about this, Abby, is I, I didn't get into any of this because I liked watching movies on my computer or even plugging an HDMI cord into my laptop and watching it on my wall. I like going to the cinema, being in that moment of sort of held, hushed collective experience, you know. And to watch it come back and now sort of balkanize and break down has been really interesting too. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Just to respond first to the idea of like, how do you also show works in new formats or maybe in spaces where you're not entirely sure what the filmmaker's wishes would be. And then also a lot of this work isn't, it's not even clear who actually legally owns the rights, right? right? Like a lot of this work, like it's completely like, you know, an archive might hold it, but they actually might not own the rights. And mm -hmm. the last person who is the rights holder was like a family member that they're no longer in touch with. And now there are all these places that hold copies of it, but it's like impossible to have because the 
if you're dealing with an archive, their mission, their mandate is not to distribute the film. It's to um, preserve it and to keep on holding on to it, right? And they, and they can often provide access for research purposes, but for any kind of public screenings. Or- and then on the other hand, there are filmmakers, especially those that work in the moving image space, but also some who don't, who do have a priority to um, keep their work more exclusive because they don't want it commoditized as an mm-hmm. object. They don't want it, you know, for whatever reason, like the materiality is going to degrade. So they don't want to show the print too many times or whatever the reason is, or it's an art object that's already owned by like, you know, five institutions. So at that point, they no longer want to show it outside of those institutions. But for me, like kind of all of those concerns aside too, I think that there's so much out there. This is kind of the issue with repertory screening. Um, that's something like Cineprobe or what Spectacle does um, or what happened when we first launched My Sight is Lined with Vision in which you're showing um, repertory screenings without pegging it to some sort of restoration or digitization effort, right? Which makes it more of a newsy thing or some sort of anniversary or someone's birth or someone's death, right? Like those are the things that all of these screenings, or it's not wraparound programming. Like it's the old films of, um, you know, the film, like, you know, Justin Lin's um, first films when F9 is playing. Um, It's like hard to, it feels like to a lot of people that it's hard to generate the interest in something like this, which is I think why we get like these super conservative reopening repertory programs at theaters where they're doing like, if it's a theater that does more experimental work, it's like Bruce Biley, which is what Roxy is partnering with Canyon Cinema on doing. And I love both of these places, but this to me is kind of like the most expected thing ever. (laughs) Mm-hmm. for me um, out of those institutions, for instance. And I think that's like an ongoing problem. And that's an ongoing problem outside of New York or LA when the only repertory programming that is shown are the things that have restorations. And then you're like tying these things that I think should be falling outside of, I mean, if it's repertory, then it shouldn't matter you know, how new it is or kind of the newsworthiness of some of these things, but it ties even the thinking behind that type of programming even more and more into kind of the the commodity object of the film. Yeah, we're not really seeing the like thematic series being programmed at these theaters yet, it seems. Yeah, not not right now. And, you know, it's something that that's the thing that I miss. It seems like they've really migrated to like Criterion Channel as every every week it's another thematic series programmed by many programmers who once did work for a lot of these uh, institutions as well. Is the future of repertory programming and streaming services? I mean, but as you've said, it's more difficult in many ways to program for streaming services, right? I guess if you have an institution behind you, you it's maybe a little bit easier to work through the... Well, one critical distinction I've been trying to remind people for like the last, I don't know, year and a half is that the films and the programs that are available on the Criterion channel are not limited to movies that are distributed by Janus Films, right? And, right. and once, the, once that shift was made, that they could start leasing from, you know, whatever's left of the major studios from their archives, it opens up just this whole other galaxy of programming variety. In some ways, it's almost too much. Like I just get overwhelmed with all the options, you know. It's totally overwhelming. I mean, I think this is what Abby was kind of, Abby was touching on too, is this like glut of of choice. 
but the glut the glut is also interesting because there was a glut maybe not like march 2020 but i think by may 2020 virtual cinemas had figured out how to exist brick and mortar cinemas had figured out how to move their programming onto a vod type basis and now that's completely dried up not in terms of the programming available but in terms of people's enthusiasm for watching movies at home mm-hmm. you know post vaccine pre delta whatever almost every programmer i've talked to who actually has tried to like earn revenue off of that type of programming is really struggling right now. And, you know, maybe with cold season or with another lockdown or with another variant, whatever, there's going to be another chance to like recoup that interest again. But, you know, Film Forum, you know, I interviewed Karen Cooper for a piece I wrote for Hyperallergic, which ended up being, the piece ended up being a little apocalyptic, but it was basically like, you know, they were not making the same amount of money with streaming, with rentals. They were not able to sustain, sustain their operation on that revenue. I think it's interesting that as of right now, they're back to full capacity in-person screenings. And I, you know, I have to say it feels a little bit that can't last, right? I feel like, you know, with the the virus doing what it's doing, I think we are going to go back to limited capacity or, you know, more distant seating. This is too many different angles to consider. But the life cycle of this like virtual cinema boom, I find very interesting. And I don't know what the future looks like. Yeah, I don't think anybody really can right now the last year has really laid bare the lack of limitations that exist for virtual programming because i think you could just continually i mean to the point in terms of just actually doing the programming getting people to watch i think is is where you're saying there are like some serious limitations right like getting eyeballs on the screen i i don't want to i don't want to hog the mic but but in terms of spectacle the priority has sort of shifted in terms of like now we really do have to find things that are not available through those torrent sites not available through VOD, you know, and if you're, if you're anthology, which is a, you know, much longer standing institution, I think the priority, I mean, their online programming has also been amazing. And a lot of it has been free uh, worldwide. You know, we could just do a list of all the amazing online programs and it would take more than an hour, an hour and a half. But what I would say is that with their emphasis, with their physical reopening, obviously the emphasis is on something that is probably expected, you know, their restoration of Paul Sherritt's razor blades, but that is a dual projection 16 millimeter event. You can't really stream that, right? So it's like you have to you have to make things more exclusive in the physical space and less exclusive in the online space. But also, you know, as a programmer, for me, the challenge is like to dig deeper and, and find things that are even further off the map, which is fun, but also extenuating, you know. Yeah. There is kind of another model for the online um, virtual repertory programming. There is another world. There's another possibility. <laughs> because, uh, I mean, I agree. Uh, like, you know, what Karen said for your piece is, I think, what's been reflected across the country. I mean, people who are kind of the brick and mortar um, theaters, but also even for like our series, My Side is My Musicians, which is one that we are charging tickets for, or it's a rental period um, to use the uh, lingo of the virtual cinema. You know, there was a lot of interest in May 2020 for My Side is My Musicians, so much so that we relaunched it for an entire year from January of this year to January of next year. But our sales for this entire year have just matched what we made for just uh-huh. 10 days from May last year. And so we really saw this kind of drop off of, of interest. 
part of it really surprises me and I, I find it amazing that people are still renting films from us but the other thing that we did do was um a lot of the filmmakers who you know uh, for the first few weeks we were just ripping their films off of dvds because like their hard drives were locked in their offices at universities and people were getting kicked off so on and so forth so honestly the image quality was awful like if this were any time before the pandemic, I never would have even entertained like selling tickets to a quote unquote screening like that. Like it just would have been unacceptable in my mind. And then a lot of them digitally restored or actually, you know, located their, you know, files, their rescans. So in my opinion, like the files, the films look better than ever. But I guess I just want to give a shout out to the Flaherty seminar because um, this was an entirely, um, you know, it's like one of the longest independent running um, film events in the country, if not the world. I think they're on like 65 or 66 Flaherty seminars or something like that. And they did cancel last year because the idea was that this is an experience that can never be replicated online. But they did move things online. Um, they did drastically drop the ticket price because it used to be more than $1,500 to attend for a week. Um, for US-based attendees, it was $450 this year. And if you were in a list of kind of third world underdeveloped countries or had financial difficulties, you could email them. And I think the discounted price was $150 US dollars. Um, and they spread it out over 10 days, um, two, two, generally two hour screening slots a day, discussions that were scheduled to be one hour, but generally lasted 90 minutes to two hours. This included like breakout rooms, um, virtual parties. They had like an in-person party at Union Docs um, as well. Um, but I mean, the thing that really surprised me, I don't know how many people watched the screenings, but they did tell everyone that over 450 people registered for the seminar at those prices. And what I saw during the virtual discussions was over 200 people participating and the in the Q&As and chatting. That's a lot of people. So in order to attend the Q&As, do you have to register? So it was kind of like a hybrid, like everything model um, in terms of what they did. So um, you have to be registered for the seminar to get the links. But I do think that a lot of people were also informally, you know, watching together. Um, I, for one, was definitely watching with um, some of my roommates who were just passing by. You know, you can't really um, tell people, like, people who live with you can't watch these films with you. Um, yeah, and they were doing, like, group watching sessions from Union Docs and a couple of other areas where there were multiple um, registrants who were watching together. And then every screening basically had, like, a three-hour viewing window where you could start watching it and then it was taken down after that and then the discussions were only live but they also had the Flaherty Fellowship Program there's like 20 fellows every single year um, who are separate than the participating filmmakers every single fellow basically was assigned to take extensive notes during the live virtual discussion after the screening so that if you had to miss a discussion you could read kind of the extremely extensive notes that were taken. And they also saved the chat archive and transcript for everyone. So I don't know that this is entirely replicable because of course the Flaherty is an entire institution that's been a, a full calendar year on planning this one event. 
um, along with the Flaherty Fall um, New York screenings. So it takes a lot of effort, but they had to custom build the platform because of the way things would have to be timed. They had to custom build um, during the virtual discussions themselves. The idea was that most people would be in chat because otherwise this would be like a 200 person Zoom, right? And it would be entirely overwhelming. And then kind of the speakers and the moderators were on stage. They were spotlit in larger windows, but they had up to 12 smaller boxes where people from the audience could basically volunteer to have their faces shown on screen and basically have their reactions visible. So they kind of like mixed everything together that I've seen recently. It's a pretty, it's a, yeah, it seems like a good way to, I'm wary of using this term, but like a ventize, exactly, ventize yeah. the repertory world a little bit more, but, um, and, and that might help distinguish that programming from the glut that we were talking about a little bit. I don't know. Well, I think, you know, this is in some ways, it's a very unique kind of combination of things. As Abby pointed out, you had, they had a year plus change to develop towards this one type of event but i hope and i believe it will probably pay off for them it sounds like it sounds like based on the attendance right yeah i i think you know one thing that's been exposed by all this is that organizations whether they're nonprofit or whether they are just companies that rely exclusively on ticket revenue to stay alive are going to have a much harder time than organizations that have already found alternative sources of funding because of their mission or because of their you know structure and that's not to say that people shouldn't be you know filmmakers shouldn't be paid per stream or whatever you know it's not an argument like that it's just that you know the short-term fix of selling x number of tickets to stay afloat versus people you know donating from out of pocket because they like what you're doing like the another screen model you know, I, I don't know the numbers, but I would just say it, it shows that there's different ways that you can sustain yourself as a repertory programmer, you know, different from the 20th century physical theater thing of just like packing the house and, you know, making it as big of a deal as you can. But, you know, I'm sure people are also excited to go back to the in-person flaherty, even if that's now 2023 or something like that, you know. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, I think your point earlier about not wanting to just watch things on your screen, on your computer screen is uh is well taken i definitely agree with that but it's it's a false binary to say that it's all the one thing or all the other because these types of discussions and online events i think have really enriched what film programming can actually be and you know provided more access in, in some ways it makes me feel like we were in denial about the internet by focusing so rigorously on in-person in-theater programming i mean literally february 2020 we were joking about spectacle premium memberships which would be like a bootleg phone stream of whatever movie is playing in the theater, you know, to people who paid a certain monthly fee. And now it's like, that's kind of where, you know, the file quality is better, but it became like the norm in a certain way, you know. I still think there's something there. That seems like a good idea. The bootleg version. Uh, Abby, you had wanted to, you'd, you'd mentioned wanting to shout out some filmmakers work that you saw at the, at the Flaherty, right? Because I feel a little embarrassed, like talking about the um, Flaherty seminar and like, oh, this is all the things that they did digitally right. without actually talking about some of the films that were there. And what's kind of interesting about something like the Flaherty is that 
they've always kind of moved fluidly. The curators, it's a rotating curator every year, um, have always been encouraged to, you know, show works by moving image artists as well as um, feature filmmakers. Uh, the focus is on documentary, but um, fiction films get shown there all the time. So there were works by kind of the Plastic Films Collective out of um, Brazil. This is including Andre Noves Oliveira, who made Temporada, which played at New Directors New Films a couple of years ago, which is where I saw it originally, um, as well as the films of Grace Passo, who is a theater director in Brazil and who is the lead actor in Temporada, but also makes her own films. And one thing that I found interesting with this Flaherty, for instance, is that um, several of uh, Grace Passo's films are actually available for free online because she made them as commissions for like kind of digital streaming sites in Brazil, essentially. Um, this included um, something that's called Courage TV, which is only, it's all, all for free. And it's kind of just commissions from performance artists and theater actors and theater um, directors and writers um, during the pandemic. And to kind of have this stuff that was created specifically for virtual exhibition being shown alongside like Isaac Julian's work and um, the work by artists who only even rarely do video installations like Deanna Bowman um, who lives and works in Canada these days I believe she teaches at Concordia but her family is from the U.S. Deep South like to me there was something also even more interesting that was happening there as well but I wanted to say I was like most struck by the work of Morgan Quaintance, who is a writer and filmmaker, British writer and filmmaker, and Open City Documentary Film Festival has just announced their online repertory screening for the festival in September. And Morgan is in conversation with Luke Fowler, the filmmaker. So there's a way to see Morgan's work next, I believe. Cool. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. One of the filmmaking collectives that was shown at the Flaherty was the Sudanese Film Group, which is essentially four or five um, Sudanese filmmakers who have been censored by the regime there since the 70s, none of whom have really made any films since then, but have been trying to preserve their own work and to start cinema in um, Khartoum since then. And Arsenal restored um, a lot of their works under the Sudanese Film Group collection about three years ago, I believe in 2018. And it is showing right now, this is in late July. I don't know when it's closing. I think it might be closing on like August 5th at MoMA virtually. Um, but it's only one part of six parts of Arsenal restorations. And what I find really interesting is that even in this kind of virtual sphere, um, the grouping is what I consider quite conservative and old school and that it's like North African cinema and Georgian cinema and Brechtian cinema. You know, it's got all of these kind of nationalized divisions um, and all of that. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. But we are talking about MoMA, the kind of Ur institution right at this point. Yeah. Yeah. It's also at this point, I mean, I think to pull together some threads that we've been talking about, like the restoration being the thing that triggers yeah. uh, interest in repertory programming, right? And also the fact that um, it's an institution like Arsenal, which I would, you know, has this huge amount of weight and huge amount of state funding that's actually collecting the films from maybe um, places that were former 
colonies uh-huh. of Germany as well. And then also being the the institution, the organization, the driving force behind spreading the cultural production of you know colonized peripheral places to institutions like the MoMA. So I think there's a lot to read into for the on the fact that like this is these are the repertory programs that are um, the ones that are continuing at these institutions at this time. Yeah, not to get too theoretical again, but I kind of am more interested in in that aspect of this of this conversation. But it is, I do think it's very interesting to think about how this virtual space has turned work like that into content to a certain extent. These series sometimes seem to be generated, and maybe I'm maybe this is just a a poor reading on my part or a uh, um, not very generous reading. But there's always a need for something new, whether it's a, so we're not pegging it to restoration, but we have to find something new so that you're digging deeper and deeper into these archives. I mean, this seems actually like a pretty interesting series, not to not to pick on the Arsenal series, but I wonder how much the fact that it is virtual colors it that way, maybe is, is more my question. By not giving it the prestige of the IRL screening, do these films become more easily dismissed or more easily processed as web content. I mean, is there is that a distinction that's like that's valuable? You know, to Abby's point about the organization of those series and and, and the kind of the pitching or the um, packaging to use those sound like pejorative terms. I don't mean it that way, but you know, this whole experience of negotiating all of this constantly, I think, does place higher stress on conceptual programming. Like my site is lined with visions. To cite one example, you know, in terms of just because something is new, what does it mean to be new? New to the cinephile community, new to Letterboxd, like new, newly available online. Sometimes something has been sitting there on YouTube uh, in full for years with like 12 views because nobody took the time to like package it, give it a sexy hook, give it some good graphic design, you know, whatever. And I think that the programmer's job is not just to, you know, break new ground in terms of like, leasing new restorations, but also to create audiences for things. I used to want to believe that one pithy spectacle series, you know, would be enough to put this or that filmmaker on the map or this film. And, and now, unfortunately, I kind of feel like you have to be as redundant and shill as hard at every possible opportunity if you're dealing with something that doesn't have this sort of uh, built-in audience already, you know. So maybe that series, the, the organization of that series, in some way is testament to you know, not the museum taking its connections to a archive like Arsenal for granted, but just sort of a, oh, if you build it, they will come kind of notion of organizing cinema in these rather, you know, as you're saying, conservative kind of old fashioned blocks. To me, it reminds me of like going to the video store in the 90s and seeing, you know, world cinema, you know, which is not the same pitch as my site is lined with visions or, you know, something that that, that really kind of makes you want to like dig deeper, you know. Um, it's not just about file scarcity or even the newness of a restoration. I think you can basically create an audience for this or that film. You know, I think, I think it's wider open than a lot of programmers are seeing it because so much of the accessibility has been dictated by whatever money, archival relationships, you know, I mean, spectacle is lucky because we can show low grade media without it being some sort of violation of our quality standards if you want if, if, if you're holding out for a film to be restored by you know macron or by uh scorsese or somebody like that 
it may never happen. Whereas if you show the bad DVD rip enough times and you build enough of a consensus and an audience around it, it might be likelier that someone will pay attention and initiate that process, which is still not guaranteed for any film, really, you know, unless it's Fellini or Bergman or something like that. Like It is it is interesting, though, like the chicken and egg problem of repertory screening and what generates what, because um, two of the films out of my site is fine with vision. There's only seven feature length programs recently got approval for restoration through the American Film Preservation Association. So it's true. It's like you don't I guess that's something that's hard to explain to people, too that you know it doesn't have to be you rate I, I kind of feel like in a lot of ways when I talk to programmers they're like waiting for things to sort of be given to them by distributors like the packaging is already in place so right. you don't have to do it yourself right um and the restoration has already been done so that doesn't have you know that so then you don't have to think of another way to um, justify or try to like convince people or like try to have to do so much work to build an audience for it. And to me, this is kind of paralleling what I hear from a lot of filmmakers about the distribution apparatus itself, where they expect for the distribution to be given to them by a distribution company. But none of these things are things that we have to ask for permission for. for. You know, we can create these things ourselves. And that's why I find Spectacle so amazing. Like when the Twitch stream popped up, I immediately sent it to Keisha and we both watched. We were like, this is, it like blew our minds. We were like, okay, we can do our own thing as well. So it's really heartening to hear that, you know, for all the knocks that I might have given Film Forum, for example, they're having a massive Humphrey Bogart retrospective, which is simultaneously extremely my thing and, you know, beyond played as far as New York repertory programming is concerned. They are showing a new restoration and that's the hook is that it's a new restoration of uh, Bridget Behrman's documentary about the jazz musician Bix Beiderbecke, which this film has been completely unavailable to see for 40 years basically wait as part of that's part that's part of the bogart no no sorry that's that's its own thing i mean i'm i'm kind of looking for examples of repertory programming that kind of perk my ears up and this is probably the first one they've had since they reopened i thought maybe bogart appeared as like a talking head or something <laughs> well uh louis armstrong and you know but um it, it's an interesting sort of linchpin for all of these conversations because i've never seen this film i've seen her other documentary about the jazz musician rd shaw which is one of the most incredible docs i've ever seen as a portrait of an artist through their processes and through their life and through their ups and downs and uh I don't know about Bix, but that film is still unavailable to see because of music copyright issues relating to the Artie Shaw estate. So, you know, that's a, that's a different way in which a film sort of kept under wraps for decades, you know, for this or that reason, just to say like, and that's, that's not on those torrent sites even, you know, I saw that at MoMA on a 35 millimeter print because I think they have one, but. That's maybe a good point for us to wrap up because it shows you're talking about uh, these theaters beginning to program in real life again, as we've talked about. And and I think that there's, you know, we denigrate the the Bogart series at our own, at our own risk here, because I think that that's like something that I would be very excited to, you know, pop into Film Forum, uh, you know, a couple times a week to check out. And the Bix documentary also sounds really fascinating. And I'm, thanks for, thanks for highlighting that. And I also want to check out this Artie Shaw. You're going to have to figure out a way to clear that music. I'm probably just going to ask the filmmaker at the Q&A, how can I watch that movie again? You know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good strategy. Also, come on, the estate. Like, this has got to help the estate, right? I think Artie Shaw might have had something to do with the film's suppression, actually. But, you know, 
that's how you know it's a good artist documentary. <laughs> the only thing I really know about Artie Shaw is that he once hit somebody on the head with his clarinet who was, uh, you know, mean to Billie Holiday or something. Is that the, is that the story? I, I, there's all kinds of corporal punishment stories in the documentary. I don't know about that one, but he was he was a real character. Yeah. All right. Well, that we'll save that one for the old timey jazz episode of the Film Combat podcast. Thank you guys both for coming on. It's been a really interesting conversation and I hope to have you on again sometime soon. Thank you, Clint. Thank you. Thank you, Abby. Bye. Bye. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.